This is Paul Nobles from Eat Inform, and I am sitting here with my trusty cohort, Dr. Susan Kleiner. I don't, you know, it's so awkward introducing people, especially on a podcast where you're just like, this is the 107th time we've done this, you know, how do we do it most efficiently? <laughs> but um, Susan, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and then give people some ideas on how they might be able to find your what books they might want from you. Yeah, thanks, Paul. It's always great to be here with you and your lovely audience uh, that we can't see, but uh, someday maybe. Anyway, I am Dr. Susan Kleiner. That's for a PhD in nutrition and human performance. I've been a sports nutritionist for nearly 40 years. <laughs> and uh, um, that's what the field was called before we coined the term sports nutrition. Um, I have enjoyed working with elite athletes at all levels of sports. I'm kind of sports agnostic. And certainly when we are here at Eat to Perform, both sides of what I do, helping people perform at their best, but also get to the best body that they can be, in mind and body, help their mind and body sync. Uh, those are the things that a sports nutritionist knows how to do best. And so uh, that's why I love Eat to Perform because it really uses the paradigm that, that is really the most evidence-based in my mind. Um, you can find me at drskleiner.com, D-R-S-K-L-E-I-N-E-R.com, that's my website where you can find my books, The New Power Eating and The Good Mood Diet, amongst others. Um, I am on Instagram, at Power Eat, and also uh, Facebook, Dr. Susan Kleiner. And, you know, I'm on Twitter, but I don't do much there, except, you know, I guess as my daughter says, lurk. <laughs> so um, always feel free to reach out to me. Okay, and uh, I'm Paul Nobles. I am the founder of Eat Perform. I'm fairly certain if you're listening to this podcast, you know how to get to Eat Perform. But we um, do one-on-one -on -one nutrition coaching. We kind of use some of the paradigms that Susan created back in the day, and we really focus on getting people to to normal calories. But what I want to talk about today is our Strong Daughters Initiative. So. One of the things that we've heard from our clientele for a long time is, I wish I knew this when I was X, right? And so we thought, how can we, you know, because obviously, you know, one-on-one -on -one nutrition, no matter how reasonable it is, is still going to be more expensive than just like finding a diet on Reddit, right? And so... We feel like a lot of those types of platforms are kind of harming young women and they're, they, they're going to extremes. I mean, it's so interesting because I remember early on being very critical of Weight Watchers. And now, you know, with the amount of wackiness, you know, I view Weight Watchers as an ally, <laughs> you know? And, and so, so it's become so extreme, but, what we want to do with this project, right? We're initially starting with about 20 young ladies. We actually have five that are moving into the program 
here in the next couple of days, and then we'll get the other 15 by the end of the month. Um, we're here in July right now. It'll be kind of fun looking back over the years of what we were able to do with this group of young women. But the, the goal is that they won't be dieting for six months, right? So if you looked at it like a reality show, you know, it's kind of the opposite of The Biggest Loser, right? And what we're trying to show young women is that, you know, a lot of the negativity related to diet culture and things of that nature, there's, there's some basis for that, right? But if we can show an alternative path, right, of how to get to a place, because you know, even though if you look at intuitive eating, and, and, and Susan and I know a lot of people, you know, we did a we did a podcast, Susan was the leader of that for um, eating disorders, and, and most eating disorder um, will want people to move to intuitive eating. But on the internet, um, Intuitive eating has turned into this interesting thing, right? And um, a lot of people expressed to me after moving to intuitive eating, you know, I wanted to be okay gaining 30 to 40 pounds, but I just wasn't, right? And so we can show people the path without having the repercussions, especially for young women, right? Because they're their work capacity is so high. If they have a level of activity, I mean, one of the things about the program, you know, you don't have to be like an elite athlete, but you have to be willing to move. And so we're really excited about this. I'll, I'll have to say, like, as, you know, father of two young daughters, um, you know, sometimes I, I, you know, I was sort of, thrust into this position of eat reform. I did not know who would show up when I would start talking about eating 5,000 calories. And I certainly didn't know that it would be 90% women, right? And then as I've talked to all these women over the course of the last 12 years, you just see this amazing amount of harm that's happened to them related to the diet industry. And so we want to be you know, I always try to think in terms of what solutions we can bring to the table. And so I think through social media, through our amplification of their voice, we can show actual calories, show young women that, that calories can be an ally to what they want to do. So it's something we're all really excited about. I love the fact that we have 10,000 mentors that can show these young women how to do it. And, and, and so it's, it's a really exciting time to be at Eat Reform. And I feel like this, everything has sort of led to this point. So hopefully um, you're following it, interested in it. If you're a lifer right now, we are sending out emails to, to sponsor some of these young women. Um, sponsorship just simply means that you're going to offer them up and if they're interested, um, they would reach out to me. So there we go. Okay, so to start the podcast, uh, Susan spent the last week or so at the ISSN conference. And this podcast, there's always, there's always like a nerd element for me and for many eat reformers. 
that just want to have a science podcast every now and again. And so that's the general idea of what this is going to be. So Susan, why don't you give an overview of what you thought was most interesting? And then if you want to just dive into, you know, some, some specifics, you know, of what you were most interested in, have at it. Thanks, Paul. So um, for those of you who don't know, and probably there's no reason you would you should know, ISSN is the International Society of Sports Nutrition. Uh, it's been around about, I believe, 22 years since its founding. I uh, am a co-founder. I have four other brilliant, wonderful co-founders. And um, this was our 19th annual conference. And the goal of ISSN is to bring um, the whole slate of folks who intersect in the area of sports together, uh, sports and performance together at the same table. So not just nutrition scientists, but also nutrition practitioners, trainers who want to know more and be more evidence-based about nutrition. Uh, so trainers and coaches, uh, certainly uh, the, the scientists and researchers, but also industry. Um, at the time when we founded ISSN, industry in the field of sports nutrition really wasn't doing much research outside of Gatorade. Gatorade really was the gold standard. They had a human performance lab. They were pumping out all the research. And so really all we were finding out about was carbohydrate and fluid and electrolytes. And that was it. And so we knew we needed to grow the field and we needed to show um, manufacturers and ingredient um, providers what real research looked like. So it was legitimate uh, valued scientific data that we were getting. Uh, fast forward to today, we have uh, a highly valued journal uh, where we publish research from, you don't have to be an ISSN member, from across the field. Um, and we have these annual conferences, we do all kinds of webinars, we have a certification. So if you look for someone, uh, a trainer who you want to know that they've got some kind of uh, reliable uh, nutrition information, look for the CISSN certification, meaning that they were certified by the ISSN for a, you know, a basic level of not just general nutrition, but sports-oriented or performance-oriented nutrition. Okay, so that means that every year we get together with all these folks, uh, people come from all over the world. It is international. I know there's 20 plus countries, maybe 30 plus at this point represented at our conferences. And we talk about the latest and greatest happening in the laboratories as we speak. And so that's what's so exciting is to hear the presentations from the scientists themselves on sometimes data that isn't even published yet. Well, um, you know, some things are not really necessarily pertinent to eat to perform. For instance, um, you know, how, how an MMA fighter makes weight, you know, uh, by the only uh, female fighter nutritionist out there and how she works with especially her female fighters 
And that was just very exciting and encouraging because these are now highly trained individuals who are moving the dial in, in trying to, even with an MMA fighter who needs to make weight within a specific period of time, usually pretty short and, and a pretty restrictive weight class where they are down to the nitty gritty in body weight and percent body fat, uh, trying to do that as healthy as you can. That's a whole new concept. And that was very exciting to hear from her. And you can follow her at um, Fight Nutritionist uh, on, on Instagram. But pertinent to what we're talking about here and the audience, the major audience at Eat to Perform are the things that do intersect um, with um, certainly in sports nutrition, you know, altering body composition is a primary focus of what we do. And so some really interesting data around that, um, some very interesting, I thought, presentation on from a, 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 a wonderful registered dietitian, Wendy Earlbeck, who was also on uh, Instagram. She works with youth athletes and her approach to educating them was uh, evidence-based and she's keeping really great track in her own practice, working with teenagers and um, some, some collegiate athletes, but mostly this younger group, club sports, that sort of thing. How do you talk to children about nutrition? And, and, and there was, so much about what she presented that really applies to all of us um, as practitioners. And that was um, not making it so complex that the information becomes an obstacle to accomplishing your goal, to moving forward. And, um, and it was you know, very informative regarding what kinds of uh, you know, information sheets that she gives and how she describes what you need to eat and, and how to eat. And I think it's just the kind of information that the whole country would benefit from really in a, you know, it's academically centered, but spoken in a very practical on the ground matter. And so so can I interrupt for just a second? So can yeah. you give an example? Because this is actually a question that we get a lot and I answer it often. Um, well, one, is she talking about counting calories from the standpoint of more? Or is it more, here are some foundational blocks that young people should eat and really focus on? And then of course, you know, having a component of more so that they're not constantly drawing on their energy reserves. Yeah, it was really in the concept of blocks, like you're, you're saying, Paul, without a big focus on, on calories, but making sure you're eating enough and eating around your exercise. And, you know, she emphasizes just as I have over decades, that if you only, if, if you, if you piggyback the nutritional needs onto the exercise piece where people are already focused on their exercise for in our purposes it might be a fitness program that you are you've already bought in and developed that habit um how can you capitalize on that habit with your nutrition 
and, and adding pre, perhaps during, depending on the, the individual and post nutrition around exercise can really not only maximize your outcome of what you're trying to accomplish with your exercise, it also enhances your total nutrition intake for the day. And, and it's an easy place to start because you're piggybacking on a habit and, and, a, and um, a goal that people already have. And if they've been exercising, they've probably created an intrinsically motivated habit, meaning that they feel better after exercise and they recognize it. I think you and I have joked that, you know, have you ever met a person after their training bout that said, gee, I wish I had never done that. And so, so it's, it's, it's a, you feel good at the end once you've accomplished it. If you merge the nutrition around that, you, it, it makes a big hit on your total nutrition. Can we get a little specific related to what yeah. some of the advice that she had? Because like I said, this is, I mean, if there's any one thing that parents are concerned about, I mean, with strong daughters, we're getting this a lot. It's interesting because of the five, uh, two are real high level athletes. And so it's going to be fun to sort of optimize that. But I'm assuming that it's some level of two to one carbohydrates to protein or how, is that how it works? Yeah, so very much so. And typically she'll take, you know, what are you already eating, right? So, so they already know maybe they, they have a, an energy bar or something as a snack in the middle of the morning or the middle of the afternoon. And she's saying, well, keep that, but let's add, you know, can you have some hard boiled eggs with you? or a carton of yogurt or, right. So typically it's increasing the protein across the board. Like almost everybody needs to increase their protein. I don't care who you are from, you know, five to, to 95. Um, and, then, and then it is, you know, so you're increasing protein, but building out the total nutrition. So, you know, what are you already, you're already having a bowl of cereal for breakfast. Awesome. How about again something to add to the um, to the total intake? Can we do a smoothie along with your bowl of cereal? Can we, you know, and and are you, you know, a lot of kids are trying to decrease, you know, they're trying to be more plant based. We're trying to encourage them to to not be only vegetarian but have a plant rich diet. So teaching them how to add you know, plant proteins, like it's super easy to put a, um, a silken tofu into a smoothie, right? You can super easy, it goes in, you don't even really know it's there, it doesn't have much flavor. How to make, um, you know, how to add the healthy fats with nuts and avocados and extra virgin olive oil and olives, and you know, most kids aren't eating a lot of olives, but some do. And and, My and, girls love all of them. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, so encouraging that when so many, especially girls, where they've gotten this 1990s message of lowering their fat is a really interesting phenomenon that I don't work that much with teenagers, but that's what she was reporting, you know, kind of this, this, um, almost universal belief that it's not only carbs that are bad, but fat is, isn't good for you either. Yet, 
they will binge them, right? There's ice cream and there's pizza and there's things that can be very high fat, peanut butter out of the jar. Yeah. None of these things are bad foods. All of them are included in a healthy diet, but, but, but it's the extremes and trying to help them find where's the middle. And, and, well, and, and that's usually, a big part. There's usually a lot of guilt and shame that gets attached to that too. And it's like, well, no, like as an example, so my dad and I, we were at NBA Summer League and, um, you know, a lot of times when I travel, I, I use that as an opportunity to um, just kind of stick with the plan better, right? And so um, it, it didn't end up being like this gigantic fast food fast or mm -hmm. hypocaloric restaurant food, right. things of this nature. We, do, we did a, a couple nights out where we, um, is one of my favorite restaurants in the whole world is there, his name's Carbone. Um, and uh, my dad now agrees it's his favorite restaurant. Yeah. So that was great. And then of course we had to do a steakhouse, but other than that, we used the meal service the whole time. And we had a little, a little plate, hot plate oven thingy that we cooked it in. And it was just great. And, and the thing about it was, is there was a lot of options and my dad's like, well, I'm going to choose the 300 calorie option. I'm like, no, choose the 550 calorie option. Otherwise you're going to be starving in 15 mm -hmm. minutes. And then you're going to go down to the store and buy a Snickers. Right? right. And so he's like, wow, that, you know, I mean, we've had these kinds of conversations in the past, but you know, for some reason this was sort of new to him and I don't think that a lot of young people are tuned into that. I think that a lot of people have this idea, um, especially young people, of what good and bad foods look like. And then they have Taco Bell or they have Takis or they mm -hmm. have all these foods that most people would consider on the bad food list. And so now all of a sudden, you know, they're kind of almost eating it in secret. And just like, first of all, your energy requirements, you know, I say this all the time to parents, you, the rules that you and I have are not the same as their rules, right? Because especially if they're active, sometimes these kids are active multiple hours of the day. I know we get like, you know, this meme of all of our kids are doing video games and things of that nature. And that's fine. That's somewhat true. But I do think that there are a lot of people that are keeping their kids active. Um, and if they could just have kind of the basic understanding. So one of the things that I think that we could add to the conversation is for parents, and I'm not saying that you need to count every single calorie, but one helpful rule would be one gram per pound of body weight. Now, technically, can you get away a little bit less Yes, right? But when we're talking about a growing person, you know, boy, girl, whatever, mm -hmm. at 100 pounds, 100 grams of protein is not a lot, right? Mm -hmm. And getting them used to 100 grams of protein will benefit them later on in life because they'll know what 100 grams of protein right. looks like. Because I don't know if you're familiar with this, but 100 grams of protein you kind of have to work at it a little bit. And what Susan's saying, because this my both my daughters are vegetarians. 
So when they became vegetarians, I said, the first thing I need you to understand is that a lot of the negativity related to protein is related to animal proteins. And what you need to understand is that vegetable, vegetable protein is not as bioavailable as regular protein. So we need to hit some minimums. We can't say, well, protein is something I'm against because I'm against animals. No, you can be against eating animals and also consume an adequate amount of protein. And then, like I said, if you're not hitting 100 grams and you're getting most of your protein via vegetables, you're really right. putting your muscle at risk, especially if you're active. And so um, my oldest daughter, she was great about it right from the jump. She got really serious about recipes, things of this nature. My youngest daughter did not until last year. Last year, she had to qualify to become a wildland firefighter through her college. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And so she worked with Eat to Perform Coach Carolyn. If anybody follows the other podcast, she's one of the hosts with me on that those podcasts. So Carolyn was her coach and changed her life, like literally changed her mm -hmm. life because she was going through all these blood sugar things and she would be highly emotional and, you know, you know, my wife would be like, Emily, you need to eat. And I was like, I hate the fact that you say that. You know, and Emily did learn that she needed to eat. And, and since that time, she's been able to move to more intuitive way of eating. But you wouldn't notice, right? Like she, she just is much smarter about protein, much smarter, much smarter about amounts and and what was so funny about it was, is that when she started, she was like, I really like to lose 10 pounds, you know? So you know how this goes, right? So I want to be a wildland firefighter, but I'd also like to lose 10 pounds. It's like, okay, well, first of all, let's just focus on the wildland firefighter. Once we accomplish that, then we'll focus on the 10 pounds. Well, guess what? When we focus on wildland firefighter, she lost 10 pounds, right? Mm -hmm. She also changed her body completely. Right. And I mean, just like her shoulders and traps and all like popped out, you know, because she's carrying around this 45 pound pack for 45 minutes and she's now fueling her body in a way. One of the things that's really interesting that I've heard um, really helps young people is don't preach to them from the standpoint of you need to eat this good and bad. Um, talk to them from the standpoint of being a good team member, right? And so as a team, we're all working towards the best thing. And one of the things that you can contribute to your team is one, getting good sleep, two, not crushing your soul every minute of the day, but also getting adequate amount of nutrition. And I think that that's really important. And so I think as a parent, for you to know what a hundred grams of protein looks like is really important if you don't know right now. So I'll hand the keys back over. Well, that's a, that's a great point. And, and there's, I mean, there's so many reasons um, for that focus on 
protein in building the habits for the rest of their lives, as you say, and then also beginning to, to connect what they eat with how they feel. And, you know, that sometimes needs to be pointed out or not tell them, see, you feel better because you ate, but say at the end of the day, so how do you feel today? And, and help them connect the dots between what they did, what they ate, whatever number of other things they did too. Of course, it's more than just nutrition. And, and at the end of the day, and how do you feel? And how did your day go? And then kind of keep track of that. And maybe at the end of the week, go back and say, when I did, when, well, let's look and see how did this fall out when you did X, Y, and Z, you felt, you know, good or great or happy or, you know, high energy. And when you didn't do X, Y, and Z, how did you feel on those days? And helping them to connect that so that it does become intrinsically motivated, not just extrinsic, meaning, you know, this is what they told me I'm supposed to do or I get a badge if I could do this or whatever, that from the inside, they recognize how they feel when they get all of these things organized in their diet and they eat them. And then, um, and then when they don't get those things, they connect that as well. So I just wanna to interpret a little bit of what you're saying. When Susan is saying feeling, she's talking about emotions, right? And a little bit of what your body feels like and things of this nature. But what I don't think we do as a society is a lot of times we say, eat this clean food or eat these lower calories or something of this nature. And we put that out there as the end all be all to the point where we don't always view food as an ally. We view it almost as an enemy. Well, the problem with that is that there is a mental health component to eating less, right? When you're not providing your body, right, to, to the, um, the available nutrients that it requires, then of course, you're going to get a little bit of a stress response so that the body then says, hey, you go get me food. And once you are at that point, you've gone too far. And it's not about being hangry. I know we all have the jokes about being hangry. We're literally talking about if your North Star is eating clean foods, rigidly looking at dieting and having kind of this negative view of food in general, that not only can contribute to a mental health issue like depression, but of course it becomes a mental health issue with something like an eating disorder, right? I think parents need to be really careful about saying this is a good food or a bad food, right? And I think you have to, so like one of the things, you know, that my parenting style is not one of the styles that says, I'm a parent, I have this opinion and I want you to do this. And if you don't do it, then give me your phone. I'm not that guy, right? I'm the kind of parent that my child comes in and says, I'm vegetarian. And I go, yippee, great. You got a vegetarian in the family, you know? And then we're gonna all have meatless Mondays and, 
and, and this type of thing. And what happens in that scenario, by the way, especially with teenagers, um, they just start to hate you, right? <laughs> like, like all their rebellion, you know, they're like, ah, oh, there's just literally no rebellion that I can put on the table that my dad's not going to be in favor of. You know, like my, my daughter's boyfriend right now, you know, they, um, she, my daughter's 22. My, uh, her boyfriend is a graffiti artist, right? And so he goes to abandoned buildings and he, you know, I don't see how that harms anybody. I'm like, that's great. You're an artist. There's an artist in the family, you know? And um, so, so I, I just think that a lot of the times as parents, we try to step in, we have a paradigm for what we believe is the way to go, right? And then let's be real, not all of us have a great relationship with food in the first place. So we have to sort of fix that piece, you know, in a lot of ways, these kids are coming up with a lot better ideas. Like as an example, this rejection of diet culture, I am here for that, right? Mm -hmm. But what I'm not here for is no specifics, right? Mm -hmm. and, and glorifying an unhealthy lifestyle just to thumb your nose at healthy behavior, right? And I think that you can kind of get both. You can, you can teach people that with some level of activity that food can be more of an ally than it is right now and they can reach the goals that they want mm -hmm. while also having a great mental relationship with food, right? But there is a definite, when Susan's talking about feeling, I don't want you to think, oh, I'm feeling happy or I'm feeling sad or I, you know, my body feels deprived, right? It, I'm literally saying that it can go as far as depression. It can go as far mm -hmm. as contributing to a lot of the emotions that remember we all felt as teenagers, mm -hmm. right? And as young adults. So, um, and, and also when you're, when you're dealing with young people, well, anybody, it, when I say, you know, look at each day. Um, it's not always immediate. So let's say um, you went to a birthday and you had a really great piece of chocolate cake and it made you feel really good, really fast. And it will. And that's physiology. And that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. And at the end of the day, you know, I'm not saying you're going to look back and say, oh, I didn't feel good because I ate that chocolate cake. That's just not fact. That's not true. And in fact, typically those kinds of foods that we think of as our comfort foods in, in, in the immediate present make us feel really good. It's the result over days, multiple days, maybe multiple weeks of going down a road, as you said, of you know, sort of unconscious eating or, or, or no plan and, 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 and having the accumulated effect of that over time. Sometimes that's what you see versus it's very, it's sort of very specifically daily impact. So, so it's not a spreadsheet that, that adds up at the end of each day necessarily because I, I think that a lot of times when parents are hearing this 
they go, okay, well, Paul, Susan, they're saying chocolate cake's good, um, that like child should be eating more, fueling their activity, things of this nature. Um, and so I'm going to combat what I think are eating disorder type of behaviors with the information that Paul and Susan. So first of all, your child's not going to hear what Paul and Susan are saying in that instance, because your child has a mental health issue, right? So an eating disorder is somewhat based in mental health, right? And so you can't view it. I mean, obviously there's a component of food, but really there's a lot more going on there. And so I think that like, for instance, if, if, if I, if you knew that I was dealing with anxiety, right. And you said, well, just have less stress. That would make you a very, very uncompassionate person, right? It's the same thing when your child is struggling with food, right? You'll have to look at it with a level of care that's different than, hey, just eat this chocolate cake or just eat more food, right? Or fuel your body, right? right. Like the whole fuel your body thing, I know people mean well with it, but you know, in the wrong hands, it can actually work as a deterrent. And it also kind of makes you seem uncaring, right? Mm -hmm. And so we'll keep that in mind. So let's move yes, on. That, yes. that kind of so, went down a wrong right. bad road. So let's um we're we're a little short on time for a few things here. Can we kind of run through some other I wanna uh, I wanna skip, you know, I'm gonna skip over a whole lot of stuff to get to creatine because it is it is now the conversation within the, the a very broad scientific medical community just to start with this and then we'll sort of uh, unpeel the onion um, is that it may be the decision is not made but it may be that creatine is an essential nutrient that in our lives today it that when we don't have enough and this is the way you figure out an essential nutrient when the body either can't make it or can't make enough to maintain health and growth, then it becomes essential in your diet. And we can give you a, a, a recommended dietary intake, an actual amount or a range of what is needed every single day. So what is the basis of that? To start with, creatine is an is, is an, I think of it as an energy vessel. It, it is a compound that when, when it is joined with um, phosphorus, it, is, it, it, it transfers energy in the body. So to just cut to the chase, anything that requires energy in your body, which is everything, you know, talking, breathing, heartbeat, skin health, hair growth, you know, moving around, thinking, talking, sleeping. It's, there's not, a, there, there is never a time with your body or a system that doesn't use energy. 
in every single one of those systems, including reproduction in both sexes, requires energy and requires creatine. So it is not just a muscle building supplement by far. Now, is that where we kind of focused our energy at the beginning, no pun intended, and, and, and learned the most about it with thousands of subjects with, almost, with virtually no negative side effects to supplementing with creatine, started with building muscle, has been used in newborn babies who are born without the capability to produce creatine, giving them very large doses all the way up to the elderly. Um, all studies, the most studied supplement ever in history and almost no side effects. But what we're seeing is its impact on cardiovascular health, neurodegenerative diseases. Uh, I, I mean, I could, any system you can think of, certainly reproductive health um, and, and uh, pregnancy, successful pregnancy outcome, uh, the brain. And let's, you know, the brain is a huge part and bones. So when we think about trying to, you know, the things that are immediately relevant to us sort of today, brain health, memory, cognition, um, uh, and then bone health. If you're not thinking about your muscles or training or exercise, bone health, it seems to play a quite significant role, separate and apart from helping to build your muscles. So, so just putting that out there. So I want to back up all the way to the beginning, right? Because uh, I was kind of letting you freestyle, um, but we never really got into how you get creatine, right? And what sources of food, because there's a little bit of discussion that we just talked about yeah, that is yeah. relevant to creatine. Right. So creatine is, a, is made up of two amino acids. In our typical diet, it comes in from animal protein. What we know is that people who um, are omnivores and consume animal proteins, their, their sort of regular creatine levels are significantly higher than the creatine levels in, in vegans. Um, the, so how do you get it if you're, if you're a vegan? Um, well, supplementation is really about the only way you can get enough and supplementation is, is animal free. So it, it is a, um, you want to, I, I always say, I always want to make sure that I get it from the best source. It's a company out of Germany called, and it's a branded ingredient called Crea Pure. And, and that is the company that did all the original research. It is the only source of creatine outside of China. And it's my go-to ingredient. Yes, and I believe you use thorn? I use thorn, but there's a number, if you go to the, I think if you go to the Crea Pure, website, you can see all the different products that it's in. What's really I, important- I, 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 just, I just want to qualify. Um, I don't recommend Thorn. I don't take any yeah. um, other thing other than Thorn, but I needed creatine. I asked Susan 
and that was a brand that she, she suggested for me. So that's the brand I've been using. In, in any event, with any of, especially with the supply chain issues right now, um, make sure when you order it, that that tub that you are ordering actually says Creapure on it. Because when I talked to the Creapure folks who had a booth at ISSN, they said some of the brands are switching in and out. Um, okay. And so they, you may have always, I always got Thorn and it was always Creapure. And then there was a different texture one time. And I asked and they said, well, you know, we couldn't get, so we switched out for, you know, and it wasn't, I didn't even check the tub because it always had been Creapure. Well, so, so, and, and a lot of this, this is happening universally in supplements right now. Yes. You must, you must check. Anyway, um, if you are an animal protein consumer, it doesn't mean that you're still getting in enough creatine. And that uh, what we're finding, what the research is finding um, across the board is that uh, to get to optimal levels, at least five grams, three to five grams a day, uh, you don't need to do the loading dose that people do if you're really trying to train hard and and get hypertrophy and you've never taken it before, but this sort of maintenance dose of three to five grams a day, three grams if you're smaller, five grams if you're bigger, um, is it's actually about 0.03, I think it's 0.03 grams per kilogram. Well, don't take that. Three to five grams a day um, is, is an adequate sort of maintenance dose on top of if you're a meat eater. And this is, you know, we do all these research studies and this is what we're finding. Um, if, you're, if you're a vegan, that's probably, that will get you, it will take a little longer for you to get to an optimal threshold, but you will get there. There's a question yet of um, if, you're if, you're, if your goal is more toward brain health or bone health, it's likely that the amount to consume will be higher, but we don't know exactly what that is yet. Um, uh, but but some amount higher with the brain, it it doesn't as easily cross the blood brain barrier, and so it takes more. Um, and with bone, I don't really know what the mechanism is in particular, but it it seems to probably take more. So, um, well, and if you, if you use too much creatine, right, it just basically gives you diarrhea. Um, I haven't heard diarrhea. Um, a lot I'm of talking people, about, I'm talking oh, about 40 grams. Oh, way right? too much. Yeah. 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 And, so, uh, um, but otherwise, yeah, I mean, and there's no reason to, you know, when I say more, you know, we're talking about top levels of around 10 grams, right? And that right. still has no negative side effect. I will tell you what I'm doing. I am particularly interested in my bones, um, certainly brain health, but we don't really know yet how much for brain health, but this, the studies around bone are about 0.1 gram per kilogram. So I'm taking about seven grams a day. I do have a scale because you know I'm a baker. And so I have a food scale that can, I can get a readout on seven grams. And so I make sure that I get at least that much in addition to whatever I'm eating during the day. I am not a big 
meat eater, but I, you know, I certainly eat fish and dairy um, very regularly. Dairy, you don't get much creatine, fish, some. And so, so I get some in my diet and eggs. So one of, the, one of the things I heard about creatine that I think helpful, helps piggyback off of what you said in terms of dosing um, and not having to do one of these big 20 gram loading doses right. or whatever, um, this creatine is really about saturation over time, right? Mm -hmm. The more you use it, the more effective it's going to be. And frankly, you're not going to notice it. You know, it's not going to, you're not going to have halt like strength or anything like that. It's going to operate behind the scenes. And a lot of the benefits that Susan's talking about will, um, Will will happen, but there you'll just operate at a different level, but it won't be something that you notice immediately. The other thing that um, you know I'd heard back in the day that I'm interested in your opinion on is taking it with carbohydrate. Um, I always take mine with carbohydrate because. Obviously, you have the insulinogenic effect. It can potentially go into the muscle. What say you, Susan? So, yes, the data are that um, combining creatine with a small source of carbohydrate, that research was done with grapefruit, with grape juice, and it was not a huge glass. I mean, it was a little grape juice with their, with their creatine. Um, we know any source of it seems, you know, the research is with more simple carbs, um, but we don't know that it, if that starch wouldn't do that. Um, it just hasn't really been studied. We've gone off of some of this and it's been repeated with, with a source of carbohydrate. Typically people take it in the morning with their breakfast when they have some kind of fruit or something like that. Lots of people put it in their smoothies. That's really common. This is um, most, it's most financially feasible as buying a tub of powder. Um, you can get capsules. It takes quite a few capsules to take in and they're much more expensive. And so you can do it that way if you prefer. Purchasing plain old creatine monohydrate is your choice. There is no reason to buy anything more expensive. Creatine monohydrate is absorbed at a rate of about 99.5%. And because some company says theirs is, is at 99.6, or maybe even just 99%, because you don't know that creatine monohydrate is absorbed at least that well, um, it doesn't, it, there's no product that has ever been shown to really um, have any clinically enhanced effect over creatine monohydrate. So, um, so it is a powder, um, cheapest to buy it that way. Don't eat any fancy other things. And yes, you can have it with carb and, and, and it will enhance that, give you a little extra absorption boost. So the other question that always comes up with creatine is coffee, because obviously there was a study back in the day and you know, it seemed like having it with coffee was was bad. Um, and then there have been multiple studies since then that said it was fine. It's no big deal. Um, do you have a horse in that race? No, I, I don't think. I think the average person and the amount of 
if if it's caffeine that the, that is the problem, which isn't necessarily proven when it's coffee, right? When we've done it with, in fact, when we've the studies that were done with just caffeine are the ones that didn't show any issues. So yeah. I would say, um, you know, unless you're I mean, I don't know what you could be doing, but a standard cup of coffee um, shouldn't, or or a venti. <laughs> Is this standard? A quad, right? Um, you know, uh, there's there's a there's a lot to talk about with with one of those gigantic cups of coffee. There you go. If I drink it straight yeah. out of the pot, is that a cup? Yeah. Um, it doesn't seem to be a problem. Um, probably, if you're doing that. The problem is the amount of coffee that you're drinking, but not the, not the, the creatine. But um, don't judge me. There's there's a couple of other questions that are common. One really common one is muscle cramping and hydration slash dehydration. So again, as I've said, there are thousands of studies, and muscle cramping has never really been uh, a noted side effect, and it's likely that that side effect along with some other negative side effects, actually came down to individual reports of teams that ended up in emergency rooms with rhabdomyolysis because they were trained inappropriately. And they also happened to be taking creatine and they originally attributed it to creatine and then said, actually, no, it was just really bad training technique um, and not creatine. The hydration piece is fascinating. It enhances cellular hydration. And those studies were done in the heat of the summer during um, summer football training in Mississippi and other Southern collegiate football team states. And, um, and they had the group on creatine and the group not on creatine. So there are all these high school, these college football players training in the heat in the middle of the South in the summer. And the group that was on creatine stayed more well hydrated than the group not on creatine. And we know that it enhances cellular hydration. So just to put that one to rest. Okay, so that piggybacking off of that, that is the one side effect that most people attribute to creatine. Can you speak to bloating right yeah. because it's the reason why most women avoid creatine yeah so um first of all with this three this this three gram a day dose three to five grams but you know three to five gram maintenance dose you you won't see that that is associated with the 20 gram a day for five day loading and typically it goes away. Once you go from your loading week to your maintenance dose over time, the bloating goes away. There are, whether it's women are more sensitive to it in the way they notice it versus men, or whether it really is more profound, real bloating in women versus men, I don't think has really been delineated, but I would say that the only complaints I've ever gotten were from female athletes, never mm -hmm. male athletes. Right. And I stopped doing the 20 gram a day for five day 
dosing schedule um, with my female athletes. And I, and I made sure I started them, you know, you never start anything new during a competition season or before a competition. So we'd start in the off season, they do this maintenance dose, it takes 30 days to load. So you won't get your maximal effect for 30 days, but once you're loaded, you're at threshold. And, um, and I never really heard a complaint again. Well, it doesn't mean that it'll stop, you know, the normal thought process, right? Well, you because... may get, if you're a person that steps on the scale, you may get a pound, pound and a half, maybe two pound weight gain that just stays there. I mean, you're well hydrated unless you're, yes. you become dehydrated, <laughs> yes. right? Yes. Um, well, there was but other a, than we... that, the real sort of feeling of bloating, fingers, eyes, the, 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 you know, just a general sense of bloating. I do not get reports of that. And as I said, I have been I have been on creatine for 30 plus years. I've just upped my dose with the new bone data. One thing that someone said to me once, and I think it's important for people to hear because I believe this to be true. If you're never a little bloated, you're probably never building muscle, right? And so this idea, this is, see, this is also one of the problems, right? Where we, we don't view food as an ally, right? And we don't view weight going up as a positive, right? And when, what we definitely know from a scientific standpoint is that metabolism is going to be more favorable if weight's up occasionally, right? When you look at metabolic damage, what are we really talking about? We're talking about people that weigh the same all the time. People that weight fluctuate usually don't have metabolism issues. So if you're struggling with, you know, being one pound more on Monday, but, but being two pounds less on Friday, that's a you problem, I mean, but you're working fine, right? right? And if you can get beyond that, you know, I think what happens for a lot of people in, and you probably don't know this about either form, but the system is literally set up to push your weight higher right. at parts of the week so that you then could go lower. Now it sort of depends on whether you're in a deficit, not everyone is, you know, but even if you're not in a deficit, like as an example, right now, my, my calories are, are over 4,000 calories on my highest days, right? And um, I'm not really focused on my weight the day after I eat 4,035 calories. I know well, that that's day, good. <laughs> I know Just that weigh out gonna, that food, right? <laughs> I know that that day will be up, right? But it's really the baseline days that I'm focusing on. And then at that point, you know, I will say like, you know, I did this challenge with a friend. Um, you know, it had been seven years since I had done uh, a fat loss cycle. I'm actually excited about it. I'm having a great time with it. Um, it kind of reminded me how good I am at it, right? Um, just from a mental standpoint, and you know, a lot of the things that people normally have issues with, you know, I'm lucky enough to not have that kind of mental barrier. Mm. Um, but, you know, um, certainly when you're eating 4,000 calories, you know, um, 
it's going to be a little bit more difficult to fight your way back to, in my case, 189 or 190 pounds. You know, the person that I'm doing with it with, however, has played it a little bit more cautiously. Now she is still at 2,700 calories, but because she's not pushing the top, top, top end, right? Like I'm, what is it? The N plus one or uh, what, what do they call that? Um, you know, where you're the experiment? Um, the outlier? No, no. Uh, we, we, you, you never heard the term N plus one? Um, I think that's what it is. No. Um, Okay, no big deal. Um, either way, the, the the idea is that for me, I'm the age of form guy. I'm supposed to be the one that that is at least willing to try the things that I'm talking about, right? And so I'm going to try them to the extreme. In the case of my friend, she's just trying to lose a few pounds, right? And so she doesn't need to be as extreme. And so because she isn't pushing, let's say, 3,000, 3,200 calories, she has actually been able to stay weight stable and actually she is three pounds lower in the the reset phase that we're both in mm -hmm. whereas i'm staying weight stable oh, right uh -huh. and so and so it, it's really interesting because you know if you said to i well i say it all the time you know uh if you said to most women you know, 2,700 calories, they would go, oh my goodness, I would gain so much weight. It's like, no, you wouldn't. You know, I mean, for most people, your body is going to adjust, metabolism's going right. to adjust, things of this nature. Now that doesn't mean there isn't a case for, um, for maybe playing it a little bit more cautiously. Like as an example, we're, we're doing a whole other podcast tomorrow with, people that aren't eat informers that we, we kind of do that as kind of a, a public service type thing. And I'm going to talk a little bit about why I would push to 4,000 in the reset in the middle of fat loss cycles, but I won't push to 4,000 when my calories go back to normal. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's going to be an interesting podcast because I think it'll, it'll give people like, Whoa, that is something I'd never considered, right. right? That, you know, if I'm trying to lose the most weight, I'm gonna push kind of the diet break more than I would how I would eat normally, mm -hmm. which, you know, my issue with maintenance, but maintenance, right? But All right. So, so for, you know, just to circle back to creatine for a moment, um, the, the, uh, the availability of more energy without eating any more calories is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Just think of it like that. Yeah. Well, that's a that's a that's a great note to end on. So I, I appreciate it. Um, I, it sounds like it was a lot of fun. I definitely am interested to go. Um, I know that we have had multiple, you know, we have roughly 100 phone coaches, you know, many of them are ISSN certified, you know, just based on your relationship. Mm -hmm. So, um, well, I appreciate you being here. I appreciate you sharing this information and then we'll kind of go from there. Talk to you Awesome. Later. Take All care. Right, bye bye. Now. Bye bye.